It is great to be in the house of the Lord on Holy Week, right? I mean, Holy, is it today? Today kicks off Holy Week, right? It's the first day of the week, yeah. I should, I'm a pastor, I should know this. I apologize for my lack of uh, preparedness this morning. No, it is Easter week, and if you're not excited about that, I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're in Thomasville, Robertsdale, Midtown, Daphne, watching online, on vacation, on your way back from vacation. I don't care where you are, you should be excited that this week we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, right? And I'll tell you this, we have been praying for a long time that God would open that four lane. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you call it convenient timing, I call it the act of God, all right? So we got more lanes open for you to get more people to campus here at the Fairhope location, but no matter where you are, this is the week to tell the neighbor, the coworker, the friend, and the reason why we do that is because Easter, I, I call it our Super Bowl, but the Super Bowl's got nothing on Resurrection Sunday. It is a fantastic day to invite people who are maybe open to the idea of joining us for the first time ever on a big Sunday like that, and so we're looking forward to it, and I know Pastor Jordan was out here, and he didn't give us a, a shameless plug himself, but I will on his behalf. Uh, for those of you on in this area, Thursday nights, uh, young adults uh, kick off at our Daphne campus, and that'll be taking place up there on Thursday night. Again, that's young adults, so not the Sunday on Thursdays thing. This is the young adults gathering on Thursday night, and then Friday, Tenebrae gatherings at our campuses, so make sure you know when those are happening at your different locations, uh, and then all also, uh, Saturday gatherings here at the Fairhope campus and at Daphne campus as well, uh, and Sunday gatherings uh, are all happening here for all of our campuses, and so just a lot is going on, and it's going to be an incredible weekend, and I'm looking forward to it. I know you are as well, but today we do have the opportunity to close out our hymns series. Now, I can tell you I've gotten high-level information that I'm leaking out to all of our public right now. Y'all just don't tell Pastor Chris I did it, all right? And that is the fact that this has been now referred to as potentially hymns 1.0, hymns 1.0, all right? Meaning there may potentially be a sequel, but it's in one of those rumor stages like so many movies end up in. So uh, y'all just let him know how much you appreciated this series, and, uh, and we look forward to maybe revisiting it at some point. But I love this hymn series. It has, for me, been so nostalgic and so special. I, I was raised in... in uh, very traditional, very conservative churches as I grew up. And I can remember many of these hymns. I tell the story all the time. My grandfather standing next to me who couldn't sing, singing these hymns at the top of his lungs. And I learned a very valuable lesson. You don't have to be a male who can sing good in order to sing praises to God. And I know that sound, that's kind of funny, but it's also profoundly important for a guy like me who's not gifted with the vocal cords of a Zach Adamson or some of our other worship leaders, uh, even though we may look a little bit alike. I've heard that. But anyway, um, I, I am not gifted with that ability. And so for me, uh, it is important to know that we can sing praises to God, and these hymns are a reminder of that. So many of them were written uh, where they didn't necessarily need instruments, uh, where they could just be sung by people. They were easy to remember, and man, the one we're going to talk about today fits that bill to a T because it may be the most popular hymn in American culture ever, and that is the hymn Amazing Grace. I mean, how else do you close out the hymn series without talking about the idea of Amazing Grace? And so this morning, we're gonna dive into that idea of Amazing Grace, and we're gonna look at it through a few different lenses that I hope will help all of us in our walk with Christ. 
but it was written originally, and I'll give you a little bit of background. Many of you may know this. It's been portrayed very well in Hollywood. There's a great movie that will give you a lot of the background story behind the song Amazing Grace. I encourage you to check that out if you're interested, uh, but just kind of giving you a brief history. Uh, it was written by an individual by the name of John Newton in the 1700s, at the end of the 1700s. Uh, but John Newton is an interesting individual in and of himself because he began his career as a captain of a slave ship. And so he profited from one of the most uh, terrible, uh, dark spots of history that many of us look back on and go, man, how did that happen? How did that occur that way? Um, how, how were those events allowed to take place? And to know a guy like John Newton was involved in it kind of at first can be a little bit shocking. And I think honestly it was to him. He, he was in that profession before he came to give his life to God and before he came to know Christ as his Lord and Savior. Uh, and it was something he took part in. But he ultimately uh, tells his, his uh, conversion experience story has to do with being on a slave ship and basically being terrified that they were going to lose their life at sea and him ultimately saying, you know, God, if you'll spare me, I'll believe you. I'll believe you're, you're, you're there. And uh, God works and, and, of course, spares his life, and he ends up saying, man, God, I, I believe now. But what was interesting is I did some research on him, and, and towards the end of his life especially, he began to reflect heavily on what it looked like to be converted uh, to a faith in Christ and a, and a relationship with his heavenly father uh, before he got out of that profession and how it was such a, a thing that grieved his spirit. It was something that he had major uh, you know, burdens on his heart as a result of. And so it's something he reflected back on, and he's like, I can't believe that I didn't understand how severe what I was doing was you know, as I began my relationship with the Lord. But ultimately, he left that profession and ended up going into the calling of ministry uh, and began crafting messages. As you can imagine, many of us in ministry have to fulfill that responsibility at some point in time. And so it was actually in writing a message uh, in 1773 that he wrote the words Amazing Grace uh, for the first time and was going to use them in a New Year's Day uh, service at his church. And that's where those words that we know so well today originally uh, came from. And so as we look at this idea of amazing grace and we sing about the idea of amazing grace, it does lead one to wonder, at least for me it did, uh, what is grace? You know, it's this church word that we throw around all the time and it's used so often, but man, do I really have an understanding of what it was? And when I knew this was the subject that I was going to be covering this morning, I wanted to do a deep dive into it. And I'll be honest with you, uh, one of the greatest passages is the passage we often reflect on uh, as we celebrate Palm Sunday, and I believe it is the perfect doorway to walk through as we look at the subject of grace and the importance and the necessity of grace. But I want you to write this down as we kind of jump into things this morning. What Jesus gives us is so much more amazing than what we want or expect, or excuse me, want and expect from him. So what Jesus offers us, gives to us, is so much more amazing than what we want and expect from him. And that is kind of a snapshot of what grace actually is. And we'll dig into that a little deeper in just a moment. But, you know, I can reflect back on my life and think about all the times I've gone to uh, God in prayer or I've had thoughts or aspirations of myself and what I wanted out of my relationship with God, what I wanted out of my relationship with ministry, what I wanted out of my relationship with the church. You can just imagine. And so throughout my life, I've had all these ideas and dreams and, and thoughts and, and, and prayer requests. And I just have to tell you as a man standing here before you this morning that I am thankful God said no to some of those requests. Because I didn't know what I was asking for. I'm going to be honest with you. I did not know to the full extent anything on the level of what God knows about me, 
about my flaws, about my strengths, about how I needed to be utilized, about how I needed to say yes to some things and no to some things. I'm glad God didn't open doors I wanted him to open. I'm glad God told me no at times when I wanted him to tell me yes. I think even Garth Brooks got that figured out, right? I mean, he was able, 90s country, anyway, that's a different subject for another day. But, you know, even he was able to figure out that this is an idea that, like, sometimes we don't even know what we want, and what we want is not even at the level of what God's trying to do for us. And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel and things like that. I'm saying, when I approach my Heavenly Father, I do not have the full picture, and I am so thankful that he does. And so when I go to God and I say, God, I want this, It doesn't surprise me that God blesses us with toddlers who teach us a lot about how I think God looks at us when it comes to us asking for things and wanting things. I've got a four-year-old. He wakes up every morning, true story, wakes up every morning, goes and sits on my couch, and he says, Papa, I'm ready for breakfast. But he doesn't say it like snarky. You know, he's just a little kid. So he's like, Papa, I'm ready for breakfast. I'm like, okay. And and it was funny because a few months ago, I started going, what do you want? And he would say, just bring it to me. And again, like I know I say it with a tone because I'm a grown man. And if I say that, you're like, ooh, that's rude. For him, he was just like, you know, just bring it to me. I don't care. I'm like, man, you are four years old. This is a trap. You're setting me up because I'm going to bring you something. You're going, I don't want that. You know, it's the wrong food on the wrong colored plate at the wrong temperature done at the wrong time. You know? Like, that's how toddlers work. They say, bring me my breakfast. I don't care what it is. You just bring it to me. And the next thing you know, you got it all wrong, right? And when we go to our Heavenly Father, imagine he looks at us sometimes and goes, you don't want that. You don't even want to ask for that. You think you want that. You think you want me to say yes to that, but I'm not going to. What I have in store for you is so much better than what you're expecting. It's so much better than what you're prepared for. And let me tell you the story of the triumphant entry. The story of Palm Sunday that we reflect back on in Scripture is to me a beautiful picture of expectation being one thing, but reality being so much more. That, that the perspective that people had of who Jesus was at that moment, they had a snippet of who Jesus was, but they were missing a big picture of who he truly is. And so I want us to look at the scripture together, and I'm going to kind of help us unpack this a little bit to see how grace plays a key component in the narrative of us having that relationship with Jesus and having the correct perspective of him. And I want to look at Luke chapter 19. I love Luke's account of the triumphant entry. And what he writes in Luke chapter 19, he says this, starting in verse 36. He says, as he was going along, and of course he hears Jesus, he says, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, look at this. It says, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. What are you talking about, Jesus? They're celebrating you as the king coming into the city. They're waving palm branches and laying down in front of you. They're they're gathering as a crowd. 
celebrating the fact that they're, they're Messiah. You know, it's kind of the messianic implications here. They're thinking, man, Messiah is, is who this guy might potentially be. He's here, and if he's here, the kingdom of David, as the Gospel of Mark says, the kingdom of David is about to get established. And the kingdom of David means that who's in current authority is no longer gonna be in authority over us. In fact, you can write this down. The people in that crowd wanted a king who would free them from Rome, but Jesus knew they needed a savior king who would free them from sin. They're expecting Jesus to come in and run Rome out. They're expecting Jesus' throne to supersede the Roman throne. They've seen it in biblical prophecy. They've seen the Old Testament tell time and time again that there would be, from the line of David, a new king who would be the supreme authority overall. And so they're expecting that, and they're like, this this is probably him. And there was a very key event that happened that caused them to put even more belief into Jesus than maybe they had prior to that. In John's gospel, and this isn't in your notes, but you can write this down. Write down John chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. In John chapter 12, verse 17 and 18, John tells us that a good portion of the crowd was there because they had heard that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That that's why the audience was there and looking so forward because they had heard that this Jesus had raised someone from the dead. And one of the key components of what they felt like a Messiah would potentially be is a Messiah would have the, the, the ability to resurrect people from the dead. Now, again, what was interesting about the Jewish culture during this day and age, what archaeological discoveries have revealed to us, what his, history has revealed to us over time as we've done some more research and digging, is that the Jewish people, even during Jesus' day, some of them were expecting a few different messiahs to show up on the scene at different points in time. They were expecting messiahs, plural, if you will. Uh, at least that was a predominant thought among some of the groups of people uh, that were practicing Judaism at that time, who were Jewish people at that time. They were looking and keeping an eye out because they're like, man, a messiah, one of the messiahs, might be showing up during our time period. It could happen. And then they start hearing the story of Jesus, the legend of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. They hear about the miracles of Jesus. And then, I mean, the, the, the icing on the cake is, you mean to tell me that a lot of people witnessed the fact that he brought Lazarus back to life? That's big. That's big news. And so we're going to come out, and if he's going to be the king on the throne that's going to overthrow Rome, I want him to know I was in the audience praising him and celebrating who he is. I want him to know I was waving my palm branch. I'm on Team Jesus because he's coming into the city, and Romans get ready because it's about to be bad news for you. And that's what the mentality of so many people in the audience was. And Jesus goes, you don't recognize the fact that God is in your midst. Jesus says, if you knew what this day would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. He's like, you're seeing part of it, but you're not seeing all of it. You're not seeing the big picture that you need to see. Here's what we need to understand that's so important for all of us this morning. The truth is, at that point in time, no one was ready for the king of kings and his kingdom. No one. No one was ready for the king of kings and his kingdom. If Jesus decided to do what the king of kings is going to do at the end of time, which is deal harshly with sin and the wrath of God being unleashed on sin, if he were to do that prior to the cross and the resurrection, every person on the planet would be in bad shape, right? 
Every person on the planet would be in really bad shape. If, if that Jesus, the Jesus, walked into the city and said, okay, I'm sitting on my eternal throne and I'm about to deal with sin, and anybody that's sinful, you're not allowed to be in the kingdom of God, you're, you're now eternally separated from God forever. If that had occurred, all of us would be in bad shape. Pre-cross, pre-resurrection, there's no hope for anybody. And so that is the time period, that is the current status as Jesus walks into the city and he is acknowledged by all these people and praised by all these people and celebrated by all these people. They were wanting that king, but they weren't ready for the king of kings and his kingdom. In fact, Jesus said to Pilate himself, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. This is in John chapter 18. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from here. Meaning nobody is truly prepared from what my kingdom looks like, from what my kingdom is, and how to be involved with my kingdom. Which leads us to a profound truth, and that is that we need grace in order to have admission to his kingdom. We need grace in order to have admission to his kingdom. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The only way we're able to obtain access to our Heavenly Father, the only way we're able to have admission to his kingdom is through the work of Jesus Christ and the fact that God was gracious enough to send Jesus to fulfill that work. The fact that Jesus is God himself willingly showing grace, willing acting upon his grace, and laying down his life willingly for us is the only way we have admission into the kingdom of God. So they're saying, we're excited. The king is here. The kingdom of David is coming. We want the king of kings on his throne. We want him in supreme authority. We want him to deal with all injustices. We want him to be supreme over all. And Jesus says, you need my grace in order to get ready for that. You need my grace. You need God's grace in order to be prepared for the moment when Jesus returns and deals with sin in the way that sin needs to be dealt with. You need his grace in order to be ready for an encounter with the king of kings. We need grace in order to have admission into his kingdom. I recently started watching a show with my wife. I don't know if any of you have this uh, dynamic, but we have this dynamic. And that is uh, we have shows that we're not allowed to watch without each other. You know, it's our shows uh, and, and we have the weirdest one. I, I love telling people this because our show is How to Catch a Smuggler. Yeah, yeah, I don't ask me. I started watching it first. She sat down on the couch next to me one day and goes, what are you watching? And I, you know, we started watching it together and she's like, oh, this is awesome. I was like, I know, right? Weird, but awesome. And it's this whole like real life uh, live footage of them, uh, of customs agents and security agents in airports basically combing through people's stuff and determining whether they deserve to be uh, allowed into the country or not allowed into the country. And it's amazing because, like, I don't know if you've ever traveled through an airport. I've traveled through a few different ones. I'm not, like, a major traveler, but a couple times a year I end up in an airport, you know, maybe in this country or in another country. But every airport is different. All of them. Every country different. Like, the rules are different. What's okay and not okay different. And it's just the weirdest thing. And I always feel uncomfortable. 
Always, you know, you got, you get in line and there's one person yelling at you, take your laptop out and put it in a different bin. And then you go to a different airport in the same country and they're like, leave your laptop in your bag. And I'm like, what do you people want from me? I don't know, you know? And I get like sweaty and nervous and I'm fidgeting. And then I start watching this show and they're like, we look for people who are nervousing, sweaty and fidgety. (laughs) And so now I'm even more paranoid. I'm never gonna be able to fly again. I'm kidding, but you know. I'm like nervous because I'm like, if that's the criteria of what they're looking for, like I fit the criteria. And then you realize sometimes it's random. Sometimes they just like take a person so that the real person they're after doesn't get suspicious. They'll like take a decoy person. I'm like, well, how do I know if I'm the decoy or the real one? You know, this is, I mean, I'm getting more and more nervous to, to ever go to an airport again. And what was funny is I started watching this show and one of the things that I didn't understand that now I understand because of watching the show at least a little bit more is that when you travel, especially abroad, and you come back, even if you're a U.S. citizen, getting access back into your own country is not like just a sure thing. They have the authority to pause that, even if you are a U.S. citizen. And if you're not a U.S. citizen, they have the opportunity to reject that entirely. They can basically put you back on an airplane and send you right back home. And so it's just this interesting dynamic that plays out where they will find someone that they find suspicious or they've gotten a tip or they've, you know, have some reason to be concerned about what's going on. And they'll pull these individuals aside and they'll start searching all their stuff. And me as an American citizen, I go, well, don't you have to have a warrant for that? No, they don't. In fact, they say we have the authority to go through all your stuff, to tear up all your stuff and to comb through it all to determine whether you should be allowed to have access into our country. Because we don't want bad things and things that don't need to be in our country, in our country. And they're not perfect at it. I'm thankful for the job that they do. But they're not perfect at it. But they're like, we got to do everything that we can to try to keep the bad stuff from coming in. You're not guaranteed admission into our country just because you flew on an airplane and landed at an airport inside the United States. And I thought, man, God looks at us in a similar way. It's not the perfect example or analogy. But God looks at us and says, in your sin, you're not allowed into my kingdom. You're not allowed to be in fellowship with me for all of eternity. He's righteous and holy. He's perfect. He is sinless and blameless. And he created us for a relationship with us, but we chose to value sin more than that relationship. And so God simply says, if you choose to value sin more than our relationship, then you are dealt with the ramifications of your sin unless Jesus in grace comes to take that full punishment of sin on himself, which he did, and pays the penalty on the cross, which he did, and is able to defeat death and the grave and sin by resurrecting from the dead, which he did. Unless that event occurs, you are not guaranteed admission into God's kingdom. You're not allowed to be in the presence of the king of kings. An interesting thing about grace that I discovered in my study was that grace can only be given from a person who is worthy to a person who is unworthy. The, the term grace doesn't exist unless that dynamic is at play. In order for grace to exist, there has to be a worthy person bestowing it on someone who is unworthy. And of course, we meet that criteria fully. In our sin, we are completely unworthy of what God offers us, and yet he offers it still. We don't deserve his grace. We can't earn his grace. We can't work to achieve his grace, and yet he gives it to us freely as a gift. But it comes from he who is worthy to all of us who are unworthy. We must receive grace before we can have fellowship with the King of Kings. We must receive his grace 
before we can have fellowship with him. I want you to imagine for a moment at your house that there is at least the possibility that it could be completely clean. Now, some of you, you've like, uh, Jonathan, you've lost me already, all right? I get it, but in this analogy, I need it to work. So imagine for, the, for just a moment that your house can be completely clean with everything in its place, not a speck of dust. Now, at my house, in order to accomplish that, I would have to ask my two little ones to step outside, all right? Step outside, we're gonna clean the house. So we clean the house, everything, I'm talking about everything. It is like the level of clean that cannot be topped. Everything's spotless, everything is in its place. Every speck of dust has been demolished. I mean, the house is clean. And in that whole process outside, my kids are covering themselves in mud. They've been playing in mud. So I look out the back door, I turn, I see them, they're covered in mud. I make a decision at that point in time, let's give the kids away, you know? You know, sorry, the house is clean. I can't do it, you know. And you think about it, like even me, as I try to start processing what that scenario would look like, because my house is never gonna be that clean, let's just be clear. But if it were, and my kids, and I looked outside and I saw them covered in mud, there's no way to get them clean without bringing some of that dirt inside, right? I can hose them down, I can strip them down. You know, hopefully the neighbors don't see anything. But you know, like I can do that whole process outside and you still can't get them completely clean before you get them back in the house because now everything that they had on is dirty too. And there's just this kind of example that I think that paints for us of what it looks like for God in his righteousness and in his holiness to look outside of his kingdom and say, you are covered in filth. That sin that you freely commit over and over and over again that, that, that covers you in filth. And the, and the harsh truth, the harsh reality that is just a reality is that God's per- perfection demands separation from sin. God's perfection demands separation from sin. Until he willingly took that sin in the form of Jesus, taking that sin on the cross, in, in order for us to have a relationship, God laid down his life for that purpose But in order for us to have relationship with him and fellowship with him, we have to have his grace. John chapter one, where John intros his gospel of Jesus and tells us the story of Jesus, he sets it up with this powerful introduction in John chapter one. And he records these words. He says, he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of flesh, or of of the will of man, but of God. The word of flesh, uh, excuse me, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He observed, we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of of grace and truth. Not only are we allowed to have fellowship with the King of Kings, we're treated like family with God Almighty. We have all the perks that children receive in a healthy, thriving family with our Heavenly Father. We are seen as children of God because of the grace that God offers all of us freely. When you think about the power and the profoundness that that should have over us, it should be life transforming. When we think about how powerful it is that God himself would lay down his life so that you and I could be 
known not only as residents in his kingdom, but as children in his family. It was a concept that was so foreign to people even during Jesus' day. Jesus repeatedly referred to God as his heavenly father. He repeatedly said, that's my father. I'm praying to my father. And it was a term that people were not familiar with being associated with a relationship between a person and God. And so it really challenged them to wrestle with this whole idea that Jesus would use such terminology. But Jesus was also painting a picture for us of what it would look like for us to be able to go to our heavenly father in that same way, to approach him as our father and to see ourselves as his children. One other thing that I hope you will see about grace is that without the king's grace, we have no hope of living forever in his kingdom. Without the king's grace, we have no hope of living forever in his kingdom. The book of Titus is one of my favorite uh, books in the Bible, and it's a letter written from Paul to one of his mentees, Titus, and he's trying to help him understand the dynamics of ministry and uh, leading a church and the responsibility that comes with that, but he's also wanting to drive home this importance of grace. And so in Titus, I've read it a few times this week just because of my fondness for it and how it talks about the subject of grace. It's something that Paul wanted Titus to understand clearly because it's what had transformed Paul's life completely. Paul knew he was not worthy of what God had done, and yet God did it anyway. Paul knew that if anyone was deserving of never receiving God's grace, he qualified, but yet God did it anyway. And so he's writing to his mentee, Titus, and at the end of his letter, he says these words, in, beginning in verse 4. It says, but, the, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. What's interesting is if you do a little bit of research and, and, and even just basic Googling, you begin to see that one of the most interesting things about our culture today is that scientists, philosophers, physicists, and everybody else in almost every field of study, they wrestle with how did all things begin and how are all things going to end? And what's, what's interesting is amongst most fields, there's agreement that there's a start point and an end point. Science, philosophy, physics, you name it. There's a start point and an end point. The debate becomes, well, how did it start? And the debate becomes, how is it going to end? But what's interesting is almost every field agrees that when we look at the end of what we consider to be time, that there was something that existed prior, and there was something that will exist post what we view as time. And what always cracks me up is when scientists get so far, and then they go, well, we just don't know. And I go, man, I can get you there. You know, if you just go with me, I can tell you what happened and I can tell you what's going to happen. You know, I have this phrase that I say all the time, especially when I communicate with students, I tell them, you know, the Bible is truth. Everything else is just playing catch up. And, and the word of God helps us to understand what eternity looks like. And one of the things that it makes clear is that your life that exists inside of your soul that's inside of you will outlast your physical body. 
The Bible makes that clear. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're going to be present with the Lord. The question is, what is your destination upon that event taking place? Where will you be? Will you have to remain separated from God? Or will you be allowed to be in his presence forever? And here's the most beautiful thing I can leave with you this morning as we get ready to conclude. And before we conclude, i got to say this. I know many people in here are parking team, guest services, all kinds of different roles. All right, we did not do Amazing Grace before the message because we want to finish strong. And we have built into today's gathering some time for us to sing Amazing Grace together. And I'll say this, you want to stay put at every campus because it's going to be a powerful, powerful moment. So I want to encourage you to just basically stick with us for just a few more minutes. But I do want to offer this to you as our final point in our notes this morning. Our king offers the gift of amazing grace to wretched sinners. Our king offers amazing, the gift of amazing grace to wretched sinners. Wretched sinners, I, I looked at that term that's in the song, and I thought about, well, I can update that term. And I was like, no, because I am just a wretched sinner saved by grace. And that's, that term is strong, that term is powerful, but it reflects an important truth. God has only ever given his grace to wretched sinners. If you're waiting for God to figure out that you're imperfect, he already has. In fact, God's never given grace to a perfect person because none exists. If you're waiting to get your life together before you surrender your life to Christ, it's never going to happen. He is the component necessary in order to get your life together. But God gives grace to wretched sinners and he always has, and he always will. I want to ask you this morning, how are you willing to respond to that grace? And in just a moment, we're going to have a powerful, powerful moment. And I want to encourage you to stay put for that. But let's pray, and I'll give you some instruction. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the importance of your grace and the impact it has on our lives. God, I pray for every individual in this room, especially anyone who has not surrendered their life to you already. God, that you would make your grace heavily known to them in a way that will transform them forever. God, I pray that as we sing this song in just a moment, that it would be pleasing and honoring to you because you are worthy of it. And Lord, we ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.